Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Please stand. We'll begin in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation to call Thee Father, O Heavenly God, and to say... Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. How many brought their Bibles with them tonight? If you don't know how to defend the faith from the sacred scriptures, especially on this topic, you're going to be eaten alive. So, at the Institute of Catholic Culture, we always bring our Bibles with us. Our speaker this evening received a Master of Arts degree from Dallas University and a licentiate and doctorate from the John Paul II Institute. In 1977, he became a founding faculty member at Christendom College and has since served continuously as a professor of theology. A well-known author and Protestant convert to the Catholic faith, Dr. Marshner has lectured widely on topics ranging from Islam to the heresy of modernism. He's a regular presenter at the Institute of Catholic Culture. Please join me in welcoming back Dr. William Marshner. Thank you, Sabatino. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, I want to start out by giving you an exercise about very carefully distinguishing certain propositions. Okay? This is fundamental to understanding how St. Augustine differed from John Calvin. Okay? Now suppose God pulls me up by my armpits to make me stand. Now, if my legs stay jelly, does he succeed in making me stand? No, correct. My muscles and sinews must become such that, in real terms, I'm standing on them. Now, the same is true if we take the verb to stand more broadly so that we are talking about being alive and upright before God spiritually. Okay? God lifts me up by his grace to make me alive and upright. If my inner faculties remain dead as doornails, does he succeed in making me alive? No. Correct. My mind and will must become such that, in real terms, I am living for God in them, in my mind and in my will. This point, Calvin actually does recognize against Luther. Okay? And rightly so. In those whom he is saving, God accomplishes a real work. Of sanctification. There is, however, a serious difference between Calvin's understanding of this real work of sanctification and the understanding we find in the doctors of the ancient medieval church. I'm thinking particularly of St. Augustine. Those ancient doctors held 
that we have no power in our nature to stand before God in a saved condition, alive and upright spiritually. Okay? If we do so stand, it is only by the working of his grace. But they also held, these ancient doctors, Augustine especially, that God's grace in bringing our faculties back to life restores freedom to our will in those crucial moral and spiritual areas where we had lost it through slavery to sin. With freedom restored in these areas, we are able to cooperate with God's further graces. This was Augustine's doctrine, and three points of it were quoted in a document prepared at Rome in the year 430 A.D. It's called the Indiculus, like the, the little the, the index. And uh, it consists of ten short chapters, and here's how the first one reads. Now, by the way, this is a, a Roman document, but it's collecting teachings from the popes on grace, and most of these teachings derive from St. Augustine. All right, listen to this. In Adam's sin, all men lost natural capacity and innocence, and no one by his own free will can rise up from the depth of that ruin unless the grace of our merciful God lifts him up. Okay, got it all? That. Then, on the point that he brings our faculties back to life, listen to this one. By this help and gift of God, free will is not removed, but liberated. So that from being in darkness, it comes into light. From being prostrate, it becomes upright. From being sickly, it becomes well. And from being heedless, it becomes prudent. Okay? So the will is freed up, rectified, not restored, not destroyed, I should say, not left dead, with this help, bringing our natural faculties back to life in crucial spiritual areas, we become able to cooperate with God's further graces. Now, this word cooperate is one that Calvin was allergic to. St. Augustine was not allergic to it. And here it is from the Roman Indiculus. Quote, God so operates in us that we may will, we may will, and accomplish what he wills. And he does not permit his gifts to lie idle in us. He has given them for us to exercise, not neglect, so that we may be cooperators with his grace. Unquote. There it is in so many words. We are brought back to life so that we can be cooperators with God's grace. Okay. God's initial grace makes us free, and his further graces leave us free, so that if we fail to cooperate with them and fall into sin, it was our own free choice to do so. And we have no one to blame but ourselves. Yes? Now, Calvin, as I said, denied that there is any free cooperation between divine grace and a human will. He denied that freedom is really restored to the will. For him, sanctification is a work of irresistible grace. It's one of his key words, irresistible grace. Two R's in irresistible. So that he who is sinning 
has no possibility but to sin. And he who is not sinning has no possibility but not to sin. So that ultimately God's will alone makes the difference between them. Now then, how would St. Augustine react to these very distinctive claims on the part of Calvin? I'm getting now to those exact propositions I talked to you about. So uh, you uh, might want to write these down. Okay? I'm going to go back to, to uh, talking about standing, continuing to use stand in that spiritual sense. Now, I want you to notice this basic fact. God succeeds in making me stand if and only if I stand. Right? All right, that's uh, an equivalence in logic, and it breaks down into four logically related and logically entailed points. Here they go. Point A1. If God makes me stand, comma, I stand. Nothing wrong with that, right? A2. If I do not stand, God does not make me stand. Okay. A3. If I stand, God makes me stand. A4, if God does not make me stand, I do not stand. Okay, you got all that? These four propositions were taught by St. Augustine and confirmed by the authority of the Council of Orange, one held in the ancient world. Orange, wonderful way it came in. The word is Auruscanum. Some town in Spain called Auruscanum. And it comes into English under the name the Council of Orange. Sounds delicious to me every time I speak of it. Um, uh, against the Pelagians. All right? Now, we can all, Catholics, Calvinists, we can all agree with these four propositions. Okay? We have no power in our nature to stand before God in a saved condition. If we stand, it's only by the working of his grace. Said that before, I've said it again. So, what don't we agree to? What's distinctive in Calvin to which we do not agree? Ah, my friends. Are you ready to write down Proposition B? I gave you A1 through A4. Now we have Proposition B. If I do not stand, God makes me not stand. Ah, you see the difference? If I do not stand, God makes me not stand. That is an independent claim. It's not derivable from the first four propositions I gave you, A1 through A4. Why isn't it derivable? Okay, let's begin with the fact that the ideas of abstention, not making something happen, and suppressing something, making it not happen, are very different and very distinct. In the case of created agents, the distinction is obvious to it all. For example, I do not make it rain. It hardly follows that I make it not rain. Right? And in the case of God, the distinction may not be so obvious, but it still stands. Consider the fact that God has not given me a third son. I had two daughters and said, never mind that. I didn't get a third son. All right? God has not given me a third son. It hardly follows that he suppressed somebody or squelched the kid. 
more deeply, this distinction between abstaining from doing something and suppressing it stands because God does not create, are you ready for this? God does not create negative states of affairs. Negative facts, negative things, negative states of affairs. He doesn't create those. He doesn't make non-beings. God is a perfect being, and everything he makes is. He doesn't make not-beings. So he doesn't create states of affairs which consist precisely in something's not being there. Something's not being in order. Something's not being right. Okay? The pain won't last too much longer. <laughs> Bear with me on it. I, I, I know this, 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 this logic stuff gets, you know, and so many knots floating around it gets hard, but... Uh-huh. Uh, look, it often happens that positive states of affairs preclude each other. See this jacket? It's being camel-colored all over precludes it's being black all over. Right? So you might think, well... If God makes this jacket camel color now, he also makes it not black and thus brings about a negative state of affairs. Eh? You think? The fact is, there is no such divine action. Okay? God does not have to do anything to make this jacket non-black. All he has to do is make it camel-colored. He's the author of its color. And it's not blackness is a mere logical consequence of that color and doesn't require any further divine authorship. So, when God makes me stand, he is not creating any negative state of affairs. And if you want to, you can say this depends upon an important fact about standing. Well, let's go back to the example of being camel-colored, also a positive state of affairs. The fact that a camel thing is not brown is incidental to its being camel. Okay? If you were to give it, given the task to define camel-colored, you would not put into your definition, uh, not black. <laughs> See what I mean? That doesn't enter into its definition at all. It's incidental. Similarly, what about being good? Does it follow that also God creates another affair, state of affairs, according to which I'm not bad? Not necessary. Does everybody See? But when we switch to the state of affairs that someone is wicked, ah, that's a different case. Being camel-colored, standing, being good, these are positive qualities, while being wicked is not a positive quality. By proper definition, being wicked is not being in order not being in conformity to eternal norm, not being in line with divine precept. Okay? It's a negative state of affairs. It does involve negation in its proper definition. Yep. All moral evil involves negativity, essentially. And as a result... The state of affairs that anyone is morally evil is a negative state of affairs, consisting wholly and precisely in that person's not being a certain way, not being as he or she ought. Okay? Well, 
God does not create negative states of affairs. Therefore, he does not make anyone wicked. He does not make anyone not stand. Okay, this is the reason why Christian tradition has always been able to say against God's enemies that God does not cause our sins. Hmm? He does not create any state of affairs which is our not being in order. We alone are the choosers and makers of disorder. It was for these reasons exactly that St. Augustine did not concede that Proposition B, saying, if I do not stand, God makes me not stand. All right? Now then, you are about to ask me a question from Scripture that... Uh, may well blow away these logical spider webs. Here we go. Romans chapter 9 and verse 18. What do you read? I read, God has mercy on whom he pleases, and he hardens whom he pleases. Couldn't it be the case that Calvin's distinctive premise, which I called point B, is revealed? Oh, you can't logically derive it from A1 through A4, but it's revealed in its own right, right here. Is that right? Doesn't need to be derived by logic. It's revealed. What do you think? Romans 9, 18. He hardens whom he pleases. Well, Romans 18 does not stand in isolation. Okay? The scripture frequently speaks of hardening the heart in another way. Hebrews Chapter 3, verse 8. And Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15. Hebrews 3, 8 and 3, 15. Those two verses speak of people as hardening their own hearts and warning them not to do it. Hmm? And then you want to compare Mark's gospel, Mark 6.52, Mark 8.17. When you compare them, it becomes clear that the hardening of the heart is the disciples' own doing. When all the scriptures on hardening are looked at together, they can be read consistently, not as God making people not believe, but as God abandoning them in their unbelief. Okay? He abstains from further help. He's not squelching anything. He's not making them do anything bad. He just abstains from further help. Does everybody see? Yeah. Now, I wasn't going to get into this. Um, but you see, I've been thrown a curveball here this evening. I was told that my topic tonight was Augustine on grace and free will. And so I prepared a whole raft of scholarship on the views of St. Augustine. But now it appears that what I'm supposed to give is an apologetical presentation that will help make you immune from Calvinizing mistakes. And insofar as I can use Augustine to do so, I'm very happy to do so. All right. Well, I can't make you very immune from Calvinizing mistakes 
unless I take you through another scripture passage in the book of Romans. Oh, yes. Romans 8, verses 29 to 30. For whom he foreknew, he did also predestinate as conformed to the image of his Son, that the Son might be the firstborn of many brethren. But whom he did predestinate, these also he called. And whom he called, these also he justified. And whom he justified, these also he glorified. Aha. Now, Never mind how these two verses fit into the rest of the context. I'll get back to that. Let's first just look at them in themselves. First of all, I want you to review the text as I just read it. Review it in your own copy of the Bible. And please note that if your translation is accurate anyway, the word all is not in there. It's not in there anywhere. It does not say all whom he foreknew, all of them also he uh, predestined and so on. It's not there. But Calvin puts it in. And he reads these verses as saying all the foreknown are predestined. All the predestined are called, all the called are justified, and all the justified are glorified. So that the result is there is exactly one set of persons called the elect. Hello? There's exactly one set of persons who are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And nobody else is foreknown, predestined, called, justified or glorified. Hmm? This is what Calvin's theory of the elect requires. And that theory is supposed to be uh, supported by this scripture. Calvin's exegesis is impossible for one basic reason. St. Paul distinguished four new from predestined. And he started his list with foreknew, without adding any further qualifier to that verb. Now, when we take God's foreknowledge without further qualifier, God's foreknowledge extends to all those who exist at any time. God foreknew from all eternity all the things, persons, events, etc., which were to appear at any point in time. Including, of course, points that are still future in time to us. That's why God knows the future. So as soon as you add the word all to those two verses... It follows that everyone who will ever exist is predestined, called, justified, and glorified. In short, Calvin's exegesis leads straight into the heresy of universalism. Oops, that's not supposed to happen. So either universalism is true or Calvin's exegesis is wrong somewhere, in some respect. Maybe there's a way to escape that dilemma. Let's see if we can give Calvin some wiggle room to get out of this pincer movement I'm putting him in. Can we say that God has foreknowledge of the elect alone and not of the reprobate? Uh, no. 
that would posit massive ignorance on God's part. Okay? He wouldn't know one darn thing about probably 99% of the human race. Oh, I'm a pessimist. <laughs> Cynic, something. Not optimistic about my fellow man, never have been, sorry about that. But anyway, massive numbers of people are reprobates. Well, let's, let's try another strategy. Can we say that the, the verb for new is used in a special sense here so that foreknowledge is God's knowing whom he would call. God foreknew whom he would call, so then he predestined them, and then he what? He called them and justified and so on. Could, could that be right? Well, no. Because there's nothing for God to foreknow about whom he's going to call before he's actually predestined somebody. Okay? God's act of predestining is at least his decision whom to glorify. If he glorifies all whom he justifies, then his act of predestining is also his decision whom to justify. And if he justifies all whom he calls, in this special sense, I mean inwardly calls and so on, then his act of predestining is also his decision whom to call, in that sense. Uh-huh. And since in, uh, uh, in the sense of before, that means prior in logic, there's nothing for God to know about what he's decided before he's decided it. There's nothing for God to know about whom he would call before he's predestined anybody. See what I'm saying? So that's not going to work. Besides, God can't very well foreknow whom he's going to call without knowing who is callable. You know what I mean? That is, without knowing whom he has decided to create. Who will be included in Adam? Who will be around to receive his undeserved mercy, etc.? So, look, predestination most certainly presupposes prior knowledge in God. So he's right. Paul's right to begin with the verb to foreknow. But it cannot be reduced to foreknowledge of whom he would call, because then it's circular. Uh-huh. The pain's not quite over yet. I'm sorry, people. <laughs> Hang on to me. How about this? Can we say that here, whom he foreknew, is meant to have an implicit qualifier limiting its object. I mean, it's talking about whom he foreknew would be well disposed. Them he predestined. How about that? And all of them he called, etc. Well, alas, any move like that smuggles in a trace of the Pelagian heresy, which Calvin was especially keen to avoid, and which St. Augustine fiercely opposed. Okay? Why does it smuggle in a little Pelagianism here? Okay, look. If God foreknows who will be well disposed, and then he predestines them, etc., etc., the natural good qualities of some people, which God foreknew, would be the ultimate determinant of whom God would save. See? We could admit that, we're, that we are saved by grace and yet boast that the reason we got any grace is because we were going to be such nice people anyway. as God foresaw. 
Well, Augustine and Aquinas and the whole Catholic tradition is horrified by that kind of nonsense. Is there another way to break this dilemma? No. God is not in time. He does not foreknow himself or his own acts. He just knows them. Foreknowledge has to be of creatures. They're in time. Since foreknowledge is of creatures, it's either of creatures in their natural being or creatures in their supernatural being. If the foreknowledge is spoken of here in Romans 8.29 is of creatures in the natural being, then the Calvinist addition of the word all to the text makes either universalism true or a trace of Pelagianism true. Not good. If the foreknowledge spoken of here is of creatures in their supernatural being, then it's knowledge of what predestination alone determines. Hence coincides with what God knows in predestiny, not before he predestines. And that makes the text pointless. It makes St. Paul guilty of a redundancy. So, and since universalism is utterly contrary to the scriptures, What did Christ say about the narrow way? Yeah. The broad one, that leads to perdition. That's the easy way. Lots of people go that way. The road that leads to salvation, narrow road. Few there be who go therein. Yeah. Don't get me started on that. (laughs) I might let my general misanthropy come out again. But uh, I will abstain from that. Universalism is contrary to the scripture, so the Calvinist exegesis of this passage is wrong. And it's nowhere in St. Augustine. As a matter of fact, the whole doctrine of St. Augustine on grace and free will, efficacious grace, saving grace, free will, and so on, was first put together by him in the year 397 A.D., in response to a letter about this very passage. The letter came from St. Ambrose's successor in the Great Sea of Milan. When St. Ambrose died, the uh, archiepiscopal chair was taken by a fellow named Simplician, Simplicianus in Latin, And he right away wrote a letter to St. Augustine, who meanwhile had become a bishop in little old Hippo. And uh, Archbishop Simplician wrote him a letter and asked, could you please explain these verses in the letter to the Romans? Okay. And that letter, it's a long one, it's got three or four books to it, it's, it's long, is the most crucial thing for you to read if you want to understand St. Augustine's whole system. Don't try finding it just in this or that late anti-Pelagian work. 397, when this was written, was 15 years before the outbreak of the Pelagian heresy. St. Augustine never changed his mind in confronting that heresy. He never turned from affirming freedom to making determinism true. Never. He never turned from believing that grace strengthens free will to believing that grace suppressed it. Never. And it's all laid out in 397 in a long, 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 long letter to Simplician. Okay? And the letter was, in fact, prompted by Bishop Simplician's uh, dilemma about uh, what these verses could mean. Well, I want to give you two easy strategies for uh, rescuing these verses from the mouth of uh, either Calvinism or Universalism. Two easy strategies. I told you the word all isn't in there anywhere. So, if you want to be inventive about it, just try adding in the word some as you go along. 
See what that does to it. Whom he foreknew, some he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, some he justified. Whom he justified, some he glorified. Ah. Now you see. The glorified are the ultimate remnant. A subset of the justified. For some have believed and then fallen away. You think that's impossible? Calvin thought it was impossible. It's not impossible. It's in plain English in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. Oh, I can't stand it. Look it up. <laughs> 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. I want to hear somebody read this. This thing is good. Okay. Second Mr. Peter Adam. is at right after First Peter. Second Peter two. Second Peter two twenty. Correct. Chapter two, verses uh, twenty okay. to twenty two. For if read? after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they again entangled therein, and overcame, the latter is worse for them than the beginning. For it had been better for them had they not known the way of righteousness. Then, after they had known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Yep. Okay. It had been better if they would never known the truth, never known the Lord, never known Christianity, than to have embraced it and then fallen away from it, says Peter. So, the justified are a subset of those called, the justified are a subset of the predestined, because after all, many are called and few are chosen. That way, there are no theological problems about these two verses. Now, a more principled strategy for going about this is to um, look back at the context. Just don't look at those two verses. and Look back. Paul has been talking about the tremendous blessing of having within our hearts the Holy Spirit who helps our infirmities and teaches us what to pray for. Then Paul says in verse 28, all things work out to the good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then he goes into this list we've been discussing and concludes with a wonderful rhetorical question. If God be for us, who can be against? Right? And then he adds, since God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not along with Christ also freely give us all things? In other words, the point is one of uh, consolation. At the last, he's going to give us all things. as a return to the point that all things are working out for the good for us. So he's going to show in those verses we were discussing before how true it is that all things are working together to come out right for us. And in that case, verse 28 is giving us the antecedent to every pronoun between it and verse 32. Every whom he did and whom he did and so on gets its reference to those people whom he has been addressing throughout the chapter, namely, those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Those who love God. Then here's how the whole thing reads. All things work out right for those who love God, because after all, we are ones he foreknew and predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified with the Holy Spirit. So God is all for us. Nothing is against us, having given up his son for us all. 
God is freely giving us everything else as well. In other words, the call will be heard. The faith by which we are justified, the spirit with which we are glorified, these gifts are all working together in our behalf. That ought to be a word of consolation to the believing congregation. Okay. So read, the text doesn't say anything about whether it's all the foreknown who are predestined or only some. Doesn't say anything about whether it's all the justified who are glorified in the end or only some. It doesn't settle any speculative points like that. It simply consoles and gives Calvinism no support. Okay, now, if I had decided that, hang it all, I'm going to speak on the topic I thought I was supposed to speak on, uh-huh. I, I'd go into that letter to Simplician now and give you a whole bunch of stuff. But instead, I can't resist having a little more apologetical fun. Okay? I want you to open up that Bible... And look, please, at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. It's right after the letter to the Romans comes 1 Corinthians. By the way, it's Paul's oldest uh, major epistle. He wrote it already in the year 50, or latest 51. So it's a very early exercise of his theological genius, And in chapter 10, verse 31, what do we read? Well, I won't make poor Deacon Sabatino run around with a microphone again. I'll read it myself. Here it goes. God will not allow you to be tempted above your strength, but will make along with the temptation a way of escape so that you can endure it. Everybody got it? Yeah. God will not allow you to be tempted above your strength, but will make a way of escape along with the temptation so that you can endure it. Okay. Now this, in my opinion, this is one of the greatest and most precious promises in the Bible. Okay? And God is faithful to it. But now, Let's ask a question. Who is this promise for? Is it for everyone who reads the Bible with a touch of credence? Everyone who responds to what Calvin called the general call? Or is it only for the elect? Mm. There's only two possibilities. Suppose this promise is for all of us. Then no sincere reader of the Bible is deceived here. All of us can count on this promise, even those who will fall away and will end up reprobates. In that case, the reprobates will have no one but themselves to blame for their yielding to temptation and falling away. Literally, no one will be able to say, God gave me no way out. More to the point, God himself will say of every person, in every case of temptation, I did give you a way out. And thus it will not be true that any, of any person that God unilaterally hardened his or her heart. See? Okay. Well then, what's the other part? Suppose the promise is only for the elect. Okay. If you're not among the elect, if you're among the reprobates, yeah, God can unilaterally harden your heart, no problem. He doesn't have to give you a way out. But the promise is for the elect. Okay, let's try that one on for size. Well, if the promise is only for the elect, then there are two sub possibilities. Number one, either the elect never sin by yielding to temptation, or else 
Number two, they sometimes do. Okay? Well, now, suppose the elect never sin by yielding to temptation. Then even one example of a time of weakness in your Christian life when you did not succeed in escaping a temptation is proof positive that you are not one of the elect. How do you like that? You're a reprobate. Even one fall is proof that you have nothing to hope for from God. You're a reprobate. Any attempt at repentance will be useless motion. Your first post-conversion sin will be a God-given license to despair. But of course, the beloved disciple who leaned on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper teaches exactly the opposite. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Yeah, first letter of John, chapter 2, verse 1. And he also says, get this, ye elect, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's John's first letter also, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. So that sub-possibility is unacceptable. It, it just puts too many scriptures in contradiction with each other. It cannot be the case that the elect will never sin by yielding to temptation. Never, never. If you do, you ain't elect. Can't work. Well, let's try the other possibility. Suppose the elect sometimes do sin by yielding to temptation. Okay. In every such case, by 1 Corinthians 10, 13, they had a way of escape. This means they had the grace to overcome it, endure it, or flee it. So in yielding, they resisted the grace rather than the temptation. Uh-oh. Therefore, some grace, at least, is not irresistible. At least you can resist it if you're among the elect. <laughs> to avoid this conclusion, the Calvinists will have to argue that the grace is only to escape for a time. How about that? It was an irresistible grace to be temporarily resistant to the temptation to which God all along intended in the secret counsel of his will that you would succumb. Okay? But then St. Paul is a liar when he says that the grace given in every case is a grace to escape the temptation. In truth, if Calvin were right, the grace cannot even be called a grace to escape committing the sin itself. It can only be called a grace not to commit the sin prematurely. God gives you enough grace to resist for a while. And that's all. So 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is a little on the deceptive side, wouldn't you say? It only means to promise that the elect will sin when God wants them to and not a moment sooner. If grace is indeed irresistible, it turns the promise of God into a deceit. So both of those sub-possibilities when combined with Calvin's doctrine of irresistible grace, yield unacceptable results. They turn the scripture into a contradictory or into a deceitful message. So, we're back to the other thing. Maybe the promise isn't just for the elect, but for all who respond to God's general call. And in that case... 
the Calvinist doctrine that God unilaterally hardens some hearts so as to give them no way of escape cannot apply to any such person. It cannot apply to any person who has responded to God's general call, even though that person, in fact, ends up reprobated. Why should it apply to any reprobate? Why not confess straightforwardly? Proverbs 11, verse 5. Quote, the wicked fall by their own wickedness. Not because God hardens the heart. The wicked fall by their own wickedness. Well, okay. Um, Usually my talks are not this stiff. Uh, I hope it wasn't completely unintelligible. Uh, But uh, anyway, um, it may well be that that, um, you have some questions. (laughs) And I I would just plead that you... uh, Not keep me here too long, because it's hot up here. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Marshner. I believe I had Dr. Marshner for something like 12 or 13 classes for undergraduate and graduate. And Dr. Marshner, I can say you're always that unintelligible. (laughs) But a very gracious grader at the same time. And uh, I think we would beg during Q&A for you to give us some of those juicy quotes from the letter that you were mentioning to us earlier. Maybe you can give us a couple of nice ones. Do you have a couple of quotations for us, Dr. Marshner? How many do you want? (laughs) No, don't read the whole text. I don't want that. No, no, no. I'll just, um, I just spotted a couple things here which I thought you might like to hear. Let's start with this one. No one deserves denunciation or punishment who failed to do what he could not do. Does anybody get punished for failing to do what he couldn't do? In other words, by freedom, we have the ability to choose the good and also the bad and that's why we can be criticized and punished for choosing the bad. And then, here's a nice line, ubi necessitas nec corona est. Where there is necessity, there is no crown. Okay? If you were necessitated to do good, you don't deserve a crown for it. There is no crown. So again, reward in heaven depends upon the condition called freedom to choose. In our our use of the will is because of free choice, we can go either way, and it's also given to us per spiritum fidei et caritatis. In other words, everything we do right and every choice we make right is a joint work. Our choice. God's gift that we made that choice. All right? Enough already with Latin and otherwise quotations. Fire away, people. Okay. Dr. Marshner. We know that by your fruits, Christ said that you will know them. And so we have a lot of Muslims and Jewish people and even atheists who live the gospel better than I do as far as uh, taking care of people, sacrifice, and that kind of thing. Where do they fall in this area of grace since we think that baptism is what gives us sanctifying grace? Okay, that's another whole huge big question. What about the apparent virtues of unbelievers? Okay. Augustine sometimes seemed to deny that there were any such things. But in fact, he was not denying that. He admits that there are pagan virtues, or virtues among the pagans. All right. But uh, where the difference comes is that those virtues are not salvific. 
just doing what's right for your neighbor, what's fair to other people, and so on, that makes you a good citizen of this world. It's no ticket to the next. Okay? You have to become supernaturally alive through baptism in Christ in order to receive a supernatural reward. I know there's a ton more to be said, but let me just leave it at that for now. We have a question coming in online about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Yeah. And doesn't, how do you deal with your argument and, and, that, and the scriptural passages regarding the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Well, I was talking about that passage. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart is represented elsewhere in Scripture as Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Okay? This is not a unilateral hardening on God's part. Okay? There is a resistance to grace in Pharaoh, and God does not squelch any um, openness to grace. He simply allows Pharaoh's resistance to stand. If you want to resist God's grace, be his guest, so to speak. One of the things that I was a little kind of confused about was when we talk about God offering us salvation, and then we sort of choose to accept it or to not accept it, isn't that sort of being semi-Pelagian? Instead, isn't the picture more something like, God gives us the grace to move our will to be saved, and thus, if we're continuing perseverance, God has to provide that grace of perseverance, the final perseverance of the saints. But I guess the picture that is kind of confusing is, well, if that's true, then how could it be that God doesn't provide the grace for some people and not to others? And that's just sort of the mystery of God's providence? Right. Right. There is no semi-Pelagianism in this. St. Augustine firmly denied from 397 on at the very latest, firmly denied that even our first motion towards getting interested in religion or anything like that, even the first motion, he said, was not without God's grace. Okay? So even the first motions, contrary to semi-Pelagianism, are not our doing, but God's grace as well. And then... Uh, there is no answer to the question, why does God give some people graces which he does not give to others? Okay? The distribution of grace is a very great mystery. Okay? And um, we just avoid certain extreme answers. Okay? We avoid the extreme answer which says, God gave certain people graces and other people not because prior to any decision about grace, he hated those other people. That won't do. And we also avoid the extreme opinion which says, well, the people who got the graces came to God's notice in his foreknowledge by looking like real good folks. Okay. That would be semi-Pelagianism in a sense. Okay. And we, we avoid both of those. So we just leave that unsettled. That's God's secret. The passage, I, I can't, I, I don't have a copy of my Bible, unfortunately, but Ezekiel 36, 26 makes reference to God's taking from us a hearts of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. Uh, could you sort of frame that in a little bit of context with your talk and whether or not we can sort of rely on that promise that he's made to us? Yeah. If you have a heart of stone, you are inflexible and you simply cannot respond. Okay? Stones don't respond even to touch. To make this comparison a little bit easier to understand, I want you to consider uh, somebody who is tone deaf. Okay? Cannot hear the difference between one note and another. It's all racket. And I want you to appreciate the fact that that person has a heart of stone towards music. Why? 
because you cannot find it attractive. Listening to music has nothing to attract him. Okay? But now suppose God sends him to an ear surgeon, whatever, and he is rendered no longer tone deaf. He can hear the difference and hear what's beautiful and so on. Oy, cabalt. It's a whole new world that he discovers, yes? And now, when somebody gives him the option to go to a concert alongside some other option, like uh, going to the library, whatever, he can deliberate. Because he's got two attractive options now, before he only had one. Okay? Well, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, it's like we were tone deaf to the voice of God. Okay? God was far away, God was iffy, God was remote, God was abstract, God was tenuous, whereas the pleasures of the world are bright, close, and technicolor. Okay? And until God gives you a power to hear, the beauty of his voice, the goodies of the world trump him every time. Okay? That's a hard heart. But God has promised to give us hearts of flesh so that we can warmly respond to his call. Thank you very much, Dr. Marshner. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.